everybody, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, and wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Antoinette Carroll. She is the founder, president, and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab, a nonprofit that rallies, educates, and guides community members to design inclusive cities by developing solutions addressing racial inequities and injustices. Welcome, Antoinette. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that you're here. Well, so, you know, full full disclosure, full transparency. I was really bothering you for a while, right? I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, Antoinette, please talk to me. Antoinette, here's another email. Antoinette, I really want to talk to you. And I know you're, you're in, yeah. I mean, now that I've got to meet you and you're like, oh, I'm out of town. I'm out of town. I'm out of town. I'm like, oh, I'm in town for a half hour on this day. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, no wonder she, she's like really crazy busy. I it, it is really hard to get in contact with me. Thankfully, <laughs> that technology has made it a little easier. I now have a scheduling system. Yes, I know. I, I think I got to be like one of the first people you to were use one it, of right? the first people. <laughs> because I was so many emails just get buried. I get honestly, I'm pretty sure a hundred, if not more, every day. And so when he kept following up, I'm like, oh, thank you, yes, thank you for following up. <laughs> and so um, it's to the point where I even sometimes meet people, and I'm like, if you email me once and I don't respond, just email me just like five going. more times. Okay, It'll I'm be glad because at one point I thought <laughs> at some point I'm just gonna have to stop. She's like, oh, this woman who is this person, she will not leave me alone. <laughs> no, I actually am very thankful for it because majority of the time I look at them on my phone and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna respond to that, but I want to give a deeper response than just hi bye. Right, right, and right. And then I completely forget, sidetrack, and then you email us <laughs> like, yes, oh, I owe okay, you this. Yes. <laughs> so. Well, thank you so much for being here. And okay, so why was I hounding you? Um, <laughs> first of all, every single person in my circle that has seen you talk is just like, oh my gosh, she's so amazing. Oh, you, you have to get to know her. She's amazing. And then the other thing was, as I as I was reading about you and learning about you and, you know, so you're in Fast Company magazine, which I love that magazine. So to like right there, I'm like, oh, she's in Fast Company. <laughs> I must talk with her. And then, um, and then just what you were doing, the fact that you looked at what was happening in Ferguson and said, I am going to do the following. I have this creative mm-hmm. solution and this is what I'm going to do. So so tell us, I mean, how did this all come about? So when Ferguson occurred, it was interesting because I, I'm a St. Louis native. I've lived in Normandy. I've lived in Kinloch, which doesn't even really exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore? It, not really. When you take into account a flourishing neighborhood, it's one of those areas in which the community likes to pretend it doesn't exist. Oh, uh, we don't give it the resources. We right. just essentially let it be and continue to deteriorate in like its own no space. no support, no help, no exactly. let's do something with exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, I lived in Riverview Gardens, and that was interesting that I was from Normandy and Riverview because uh, you may remember a few years ago there was those wonderful conversations about the sk- kids going to those schools and do we need clear backpacks and should we have metal detectors? Oh, and, gosh. you know, I'm a product of both of those schools. Yeah. And, I remember when I got older, before I decided that I was going to move out of the city sooner or later, um, I was like, I'm going to move to Ferguson because it's a better community than what I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I went there, for me, it was like a, a come up <laughs> in right. a sense. Um, and we were there for almost, actually, we were there over three years and we moved out of Ferguson six months prior to the unrest. And when the unrest happened, it was the same response that we always see. Top-down approach, silos, fragmentation, and a lot of conversation and not enough action. 
How many times have we gone to conferences or convenings or summits and you leave and you always say, that's great that we talked about this, but what's next? Right. What are we going to do about it? What's the action? Exactly. And so I wanted to create a space of inclusion. I wanted to create a space for creativity and create a space where it was around action. Right. And so that's when Creative Reaction Lab was founded, which at that time wasn't an organization. I was still head of communications and design at Diversity Awareness Partnership at that time. For me, it was an event. It was a way to um, organize around the idea of design and creativity. And we had over 60 ideas that came out of this 24-hour challenge, which is what it was. Uh, Five were worked on throughout the night. All five were activated in the St. Louis community within a year. Wow. And I'm very excited about that because, I mean, it was... Well, talk about what was activated. So the five ideas range from public art to technology approaches. And so I'll quickly go through them because I literally have done lectures on this (laughs) and we don't have that much time. We don't have that much time today. (laughs) You have meetings to get to. We already know. Exactly. (laughs) But um, first one, Cards Against Brutality, played upon the name of Cards Against Humanity, but for good. Uh (laughs) Um, Cards Against Brutality was an education toolkit in which they wanted to address the issue of media narration and framing. How many times we see a media they refer to black men in particular calling them thugs which I like to say is the new n-word or um, you know victim blaming and so they wanted to make them relatable to individuals and say this was someone's son this was someone's daughter this was a student this was a child this was a father this was a mother and have conversations around language that we use Mm -hmm. then we had connected for justice which was an education um, not education uh, um, technology platform which was around this idea of civic matchmaking coined by Deanne Nichols and civics matchmaking is similar to I like to say like it's the tinder match.com before activism and social good so instead of trying to find the love of your life or maybe a side piece if that's what you're into um, (laughs) you you know you go to the site and you say I have this idea that I want to activate in my community and then others come and actually help you make it happen oh how cool and that project um, actually when it closed because it was only based on the protest when it closed down uh, it had over 768 actions that came from that site. So that was very exciting. Then we had the Five Switch Project, which was looking at stereotyping and identities because we believe that individuality is the opposite of stereotypes and assumptions. Yeah. And so it was a public art tool uh, and it continued. This one is uh, still active to this day. It continues to ask people how have you been stereotyped or how have people viewed you? And in reality, you are what? So it's just like mad libs, but in a public space. Right. Then we have the Look Beyond Your Fear project, which looked at this idea of a culture of fear, which is data supported, mm-hmm. where there's data that actually states that when you see black men or a black man walking down the street or in the elevator, you're more likely to cross the street. You're more than likely to move to the closer to um, the perimeter of the elevator. And so this project was looking at this idea of how we use fear to dictate our actions as well as our, our assumptions. And many times we hide behind this idea of safety uh, as a way of trying to minimize our fear. But in reality, many of our decisions and actions are around fear. So it was an art warfare project where it was a combination of public art and stickers. That project, the stickers have been in Paris, they've been in Dallas, they've been, you know, all around the world and people still are requesting them. 
Oh, cool. And we're actually going to have them on creativereactionlabs.com uh, for people to be able to get them as well. Uh, and then the last project, and I'm literally going through my head right now. Uh, <laughs> Which one? The, if you don't remember it now, that's okay. We no, can, I remember I can talk it. About uh, it. It was the Red Table Project in which uh, they're mission was to turn strangers into neighbors and directly looking at the Del Mar divide as well as divide and olive like we know in St. Louis Del Mar is not the only street that has major division when it comes right. to race when it comes to economic status and so they wanted to convene community members around food and have general conversations around just being so oh, opposed cool. to you know, why, it, how should we address racism? More asking, what's your zodiac sign? Would you prefer Neapolitan, vanilla, <laughs> or strawberry, or chocolate ice cream? But really just getting to know us as individuals and as neighbors, which we don't do enough of, and we actually kind of lost throughout our time. Right. You know, I okay, so I was at, it's called Mao House. It is mm. a cafe where there's cats. So, okay. <laughs> but when I went and I parked at Mao House, it's it's like at the end of the street and it's in, there's a neighborhood. So I was parking in a neighborhood and I took a picture of it. There was a sign um in one in the neighbor in the in the person's yard that said, Thank you so much for being our neighbors. We welcome you to the mm. neighborhood. And it was in a bunch of different languages. Mm-hmm. And I thought, now that is cool. Mm-hmm. That says a lot about the person in that house. It, 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 I mean, yeah. just it made such a statement to be like, yeah, we're in a neighborhood and we welcome everybody. If if you're here and you are living in this neighborhood, you are welcome to be here. And I thought that was just awesome. No, I love that. And it's, sometimes we don't even talk about the division of language uh, between right. us. I just came from Montreal through, uh, I was there for the Next City Vanguard uh, program and that was the first time I personally had heard conversational French because I, you know, I grew up lower income. I don't shy away from that. That part of what has led me on my social justice journey and who right. I am as a be- an individual and being there and hearing conversational French. And when you see individuals literally give speeches where they will say a paragraph in English and then translate it in French themselves. Right. And that was the way they presented it. It was so just eye-opening for me. And I remember when I was working at Diverse Awareness Partnership before I pursued Creative Reaction Lab full-time, going to New York and as you know, just walking down a street in New York, you hear so many languages. so true. And even in that setting, especially as someone that was over communications, I was a little upset at myself because I was like, I work at a diversity organization and yet all of our documents, all of our communication is in English. We haven't even taken the time to translate it to Spanish, translate it to French, translate it to any other language, and that's something that we need to do. So even so with Creative we Reaction Lab, we're doing that. people that are willing to give their time yes. to do some translating for yes. you because you are a not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. So I, I know about the not-for-profit <laughs> world. <laughs> exactly. So this exactly. is our call out there to translators, <laughs> anyone that could help with this. Particularly and, in uh, Spanish. Since okay. we work with Black and Latinx youth through Creative Reaction Lab, my... I am relearning Spanish because that's the thing when you don't use it conversationally, right, right, you right. lose it. Yep, I know uh, that one. And I want also our communications to be translated to Spanish as well. So that is something that's a goal of mine. Right. But to your point, nonprofit, when I personally we, sometimes we need don't have that volunteers time. <laughs> is what we need, right? <laughs> exactly. I know. Well, we are going to take a quick break. We will be right back with Antoinette.
and we are back with Antoinette. Hello, Antoinette. So you were telling Hello us again. all, I love, I mean, so there's this whole thing, and I'm sure everybody that listens to me already knows I'm into this whole idea of ideas are great, but implementation is what <laughs> makes yes. everything start yes. to move and happen. And so I love talking to people that are the implementers that are like, yeah, wonderful. We had this conversation. Now we actually have to go do something about it, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. but, and, and I have a question. Um, so you are working with African-American and Latin youth. Black mainly. and Latinx. Yes. La- Black and Latinx. What is the X? What is the X? Yeah, I, I get that know. a lot. I keep looking at, I'm like, I don't know what this means. So the thing about being someone that work in the diversity and inclusion space is that I try to use inclusive language as much as possible. Okay. So Latinx takes into account male, female, as well as non-gender binary individuals. Because the um, when you say Latin um, Latino, that is for man or male. When you say Latina, that's for female or woman. Ah. But for individuals that are non-binary gender or agender, that doesn't really include them in either one of those terms. And so Latinx is the new way of saying it because it is inclusive oh. of all. Got you. And then you, I said African-American and you said black. So tell me that. The reason why I say black is because some people don't refer to themselves as African-American. Okay. Uh, some refer to themselves as black. Some refer to themselves as African-American. Some, uh, if you take into account uh, the Caribbean and where they come from, some are purely True. African. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, or you're like me and I like to say I'm caramel. So... <laughs> 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 I like caramel. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, so I try to say black again, trying to be as inclusive as possible uh, from people's background. Got yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always learning. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, I, and you know, I mean, for me, from my heart, I want to be inclusive and I don't want to create any kind of divisiveness by what same I say. Same here. So. Same here. It's a, the thing about being in this space is it's a learning opportunity and it's a journey i tell people all the time i am hopeful that when i am 70 years old when i'm 80 when i'm 90 my goal is 105 but (laughs) (laughs) that i am still learning and you know there's no perfection we make mistakes yep dissent is always going to happen Uh, i actually encourage it and so for me it's always around how can i improve on what I'm saying, what I'm doing. Uh, and that's why many people, they laugh at me when I say I live my life through the lens of failure. But the reason why I live it through the lens of failure opposed to success is that when you say I've been successful, you no longer try to give a critical eye. I'm done. You know, I've accomplished it all. But when you live your life through failure, you look at everything and say, how did I fail and how can I improve for the next go round? That's awesome. And it's so true. I mean, People that think they're, you know, they're on the road to happiness and at one point they're just going to find this thing Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they're going to be happy. I'm like, no, (laughs) Mm -mm. because then there's other people and there's weather things, (laughs) (laughs) accidents happen and there's all kinds of things you don't have control over. So like finding happiness is, is, it's it's really being happy with where you are, Mm -hmm. but then always being willing to grow. Exactly. You know, and that's really what you're doing. You're like, what did what did we do wrong to make this better? Mm-hmm. What did we don't do wrong to make this? So it's not like a failure, failure. It's more like that didn't work as hot as we wanted it to do. Let's go that way. And I use, I tell people all the time, I view failure on a spectrum. To me, it, it's like the color prism, you know. It's, okay. it's not where it's this or this, like gray. I mean, it's white or black. You right. know, it's gray. You know, you have some utter horrible failures and then you have some minor failures. <laughs> was, yeah, right. Uh, and so for me, it's not, it, 
a failure is a failure, but it's not a bad thing to me. We put this negative connotation on the word, and therefore we don't even want to be associated with it. But I love I'm okay it. with that. I, no, that's good. <laughs> I like that. So where do the kids come from? Like who? What? Wh- how do you find the kids that become a part mm-hmm. of this? And then what does what does it all look like? So for our organization, we say that we are looking to build a new form of civic leader, which are equity centered community designers. The idea is that everyone has the capability to design Mm -hmm. racial inequities, social uh, system of oppression and injustices and inequities. They've all been designed. Right. And therefore, we believe that intentional design is needed to dismantle it. And so we look at design as a process as well as a mindset shift. And so when it comes to working with youth, it's all around partnerships. And speaking of anyone listening to the podcast, (laughs) if you're willing to partner with us, if you work with youth as a school, as a church, as a a religious meeting area, as a youth organization, we want to partner with everyone that already has access to the youth. You have a relationship with them. You have trust with them. And it's why challenge and compete against each other and recreate the wheel when we can be collaborating for the betterment of our youth and for our future. And so for us, when it comes to getting the youth, it's through partnerships. Uh, I don't want to just take away from someone else's program, but more supplement someone else's program. Uh, That being said, we do have our standalone programs. One in particular is Designed to Better Our City, which our longer form is launching in the fall. Our application actually is live now on the site for high school students. Okay. Uh, And our college mentor application will be live as well within the upcoming week, uh, in which we have, in particular, Black and Latinx youth co-create solutions addressing racial inequities within our communities. But the thing about racial inequities is that many people, they see that term and they think, oh, it's just this one bubble. Racial inequities are embedded in the healthcare system. It's embedded in our food system, especially with food deserts and criminal justice and child health and well-being. And so there's so many of these issues we have in our community and there is a racial undertone. We just want to pretend that it's not there. Got you. And so for us is looking at this idea of cultural history and healing because many of our youth have not been taught our culture. I personally had to self-teach myself uh, um, a lot. Really? Um, what, because it was not provided to you at school? No. Like, yeah. in school, it, was, it was a whole different history book you <laughs> right. were reading, right? <laughs> we were yeah. taught an abbreviated uh, story in, in school. Most of the time you talk about slavery, you talk about Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, and maybe you'll get to something that's you know current to date. But we're not told about redlining, we're not told about Black Wall Street, we're not told told about um, how decisions were made to keep us separate in housing, we were, we're not told about mass incarceration and the war on drugs. We essentially, as a community, are taught that it's our fault. And then stereotypes is what have stereotypes of welfare, queen, and laziness, and you know, are they coming in to steal our jobs? You know, all right. these different things. Right. Not recognizing that historically in our country, it, we have had internalized oppression, and I like to say chronic racial oppression, and that in itself leads to PTSD uh, within the culture, and that leads to generational and intersectional poverty and all these issues that we have to combat. So the first thing we need to do is learn about our culture and then try to heal from it while addressing um, the issues currently in our backyard while preparing for the future. So smart. I mean, I will tell you, because the, the thing is, and so many people don't understand that, that 
you know, our genes, our genes, are, we hold memories in mm-hmm. those genes. And so there are, there's, there's our ancestors that came before us mm-hmm. and those memories are still within us. And, and sometimes when you're acting in a certain way from, you know, it's unconscious on your part. Yes. So the way that you, you have to think of, I'm not only when I'm healing myself, I'm also healing like my bloodline and mm-hmm. I'm healing my community. It, you know, and it's that whole idea. It starts with you heal yourself. And then that will just have that ripple effect. Not only exactly. in your community, but uh, along your bloodline, like through mm-hmm. generations, right? Yep. So I I applaud you, ma'am. <laughs> thank you. I'm telling you, thank you so much because that um, it's so necessary and why I kept emailing you and bothering you to talk to me <laughs> because I kept thinking, she's doing something. She's mm-hmm. like one of the people that's out there saying, uh-uh, you know, this can't keep going on like this. So let's get this done. And then let's look at this in a very holistic way. Yes. So awesome. Yes. And we make mistakes you know, and, okay. and we learn. And we from learn them. from our failures. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's all, it's about actually doing it and giving the community and particularly we look at our movement as youth led community centered. And so giving them agency to actually take back uh, their history and recreate a better one. Very opposed cool. to just thinking that, you know, individualized, this is my fault. Right. And so that's what we're focusing on. I can do something about it. And mm-hmm. with that, we're going to take a break. We will be right back with Antoinette Carroll. back with Antoinette Carroll. So this is one of my favorite times because this just takes us into a whole different place. Okay. And these are my questions. And you may take these wherever ever you is want to Is this like an Ellen DeGeneres question where you, she randomly throws and you're like, huh? Oh, but not like, no. <laughs> I, I'm not going to, I'm not, no, this isn't meant to stump. This is just meant to like spark some new conversation. Okay. So you're all, you have a background, a great background in design. Mm-hmm. So Explain to us what role does design play in racism? Oh, that is a good question because, I, as I stated earlier, um, racism and even the construct of race are design. Uh, and we don't refer to it as such. The thing about design is it's an invisible innovation. It literally is the the disruptor of society. Like when we look around us, everything has been designed. You can look at the tangibles, whether it's our clothes, the buildings we're within, the streets we're walking down. These are all designs. Right. Yet we don't call it that. We just see it as our everyday life. So that's why I tell people, you know, design is working or not working <laughs> when right. you don't notice it's there. Ooh, uh, how interesting. Exactly. Um, and it's the same when it comes to the construct of racism. Uh, when you look at the decisions that were made, structural s- decisions that were made, uh, those in itself were design decisions. We are designing this outcome for a certain community. We are designing this social caste system. These weren't just built. You right. know, they they were designed. You know, there's the prey and there's the predator. There's the haves and the haves not. And how do we make it where certain cultures or certain um, different identities that are more marginalized? Honestly, it, 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 I know oppression has such this negative connotation, but and I know in their mind they may not have been thinking it as oppression, but that's literally what it is. Well, because they weren't looking at 
the, they weren't thinking design is a thing. Do you no, think that and, that's... And, and they honestly, when you look at history, especially as an African-American woman, black woman, caramel woman, um, I was not a being. I was not a person. I was property. Like that's when you think about your pet, your dog, your mm -hmm. cat, that's what black people were historically when we were brought to this country. Got yeah. And so that was a design decision to remove and strip away that humanity and make someone a property, a piece of property. And then when you look at throughout history, how times have changed, there were communities, black communities in particular, that were flourishing. They had their own uh, fire stations, they had their own schools, they had their own towns, and they were destroyed. They were literally destroyed on our own soil. And now we've been fed the construct of black people being lazy and using welfare, even though uh, white women actually use it more than blacks. Really? Um, yes. <laughs> but we've been fed that story. And so there's people that are like, well, why don't they just go out and get a job? Or why, like, we heard this a lot with the Ferguson uh, protests. You know, these jobless people can just walk around and protest all day. They need to get a job. Not recognizing that actually a majority of those people out there had jobs. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Know? And they still were fighting for their rights. And so those were all design decisions. When you make a plan, when you make a blueprint, when you are sitting there and you're constructing something, you're designing something. And so with racism, it very much was a design. It continues to be so when you look at some decisions that have been made. In Texas, for instance, when you have a textbook that erases slavery and re refers to it as indentured servitude. Right. Or when, for instance, you look at the racial wealth gap. Many people are not aware that it would take the blacks, a black community in particular, 228 years to accumulate the same amount of wealth as whites. Oh, this is gosh. a racial wealth gap that is 17 years short of slavery. And this is based on the growth of our communities. It would take the Latinx community to the year 2097. These are not individual decisions. These are not just individual happening. These are designs that are impacting systemic communities and communities overall. In St. Louis, for instance, from the work from For the Sake of All report and Ford through Ferguson, we've now learned that there is an 18-year life expectancy gap between black residents and white residents. Oh, Those are wow. designs. It's <laughs> and it's, it's perspective changing. And so what, mm -hmm. you're, so what you're asking people to do is wake up, mm -hmm. wake up and notice be and awake do, and, and be aware and then do something, to do something about, about, it. about it. And recognize it's not going to change in t in a year. Like the thing about working in nonprofit is that we tend to be led by short-term goals. Right. Because that's what our funders want is, you know, what what's your outcomes? What what are you going to do? But when you're addressing issues such as racial inequities, that are that's centuries. Yeah. of work. Right. That is not going to be dismantled in my lifetime. Right. But it's got to start somewhere. <laughs> exactly. It's like somebody's got to lead the path. Exactly. Right? So how do we build a new system that over time start to dwindle it down percentage-wise? Oh my gosh. It, that is just fascinating. Yeah. It makes me think of polio. That I mean, many people think right. polio is fully eradicated, yeah, nope. but there's still cases. You're right. You know, and again, how that's how I I look at it in the same sense. How do we get rid of racism, but know that it's going to be a gradual uh, effort? So, in asking people to wake up, mm -hmm. who do you have a mentor that you feel like they were awake? That oh. person was awake, and I want to follow them, or or just a a person in history or someone that you felt like they 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 woke up. 
Oh, there's so many. There's so many. And I believe in this idea of reverse mentoring where I have mentors that are younger than me. You oh, know, and good. I have mentors awesome. that are older than me. Yep. Uh, that I mentioned Deandra Nichols before. She's a phenomenal woman in St. Louis doing great work. Nicole Hudson, Travis Sheridan, Tashara Jones. I mean, there are so many people here in this community that are fighting for people's rights. Sarah Burke, uh, the Felicia Shaw with the Regional Arts Commission, Jack Burke. I mean, these are all St. Louis leaders, uh, and some of them are just community members that are doing work. Kayla Reed. I mean, they they are literally saying, you know, enough is enough and I'm going to use my talent, my skill and my expertise to address it. But then there's people nationally. I mean, Michelle Obama, who doesn't love her? Oh, like, right? <laughs> like, who, doesn't? who doesn't love Michelle I Obama? I mean, well, my daughter didn't for a while because of the lunch thing. Because my daughter's like, I don't want to eat this lunch. I'm like, the woman is really doing good she, things. Well, so it's tell good. your daughter to look at the lunch in other countries oh, and then yeah. have her question the right, lunch. Right, right, yeah. Exactly. But yeah. you know, it's it's one where mentors are everywhere and some of them you have the pleasure and the honor of interacting with them every day and then some you just look at their actions and you know, it inspires you and I'm hopeful that my actions are inspiring others to create change in our communities. So that to me, that's how mentorship is. Well, they are and oh, I mean, if they are and that's what's, it's, you know, again, my favorite people are the people that are doing something. Mm-hmm. You know, I love to highlight people that are like problem. Okay, we're going to start working on a solution. Here. <laughs> right. You right. know, I mean, instead of like, well, it's a problem. It's a problem. And they just keep talking. And you're like, okay, you can talk about the problem mm-hmm. all day long, but something has to be done. So that's you know, I, I like the action leaders. Okay, so when I, I, you described yourself as a drops in the bucket type. What does that mean? <laughs> I said it a lot that I'm a drops in a bucket type of girl. Uh, and it kind of alludes to what I mentioned earlier, where when we look at issues such as racism or sexism or poverty or gun violence, it's like we want that one solution to get rid of it. And mm-hmm. that's why, you know, even though solution is in our mission statement at Creative Reaction Lab, I prefer to say approaches because when you say solution, people think finite. Right. I think that is what it. is the one thing that's, that's going to make this change that's it gonna do it. And so for me, it's drops in a bucket effort, you know, where we have our small interventions. We have our large interventions. Some of them are, you know, art projects. Some of them are policy changes. And we need all of that. And I started saying it more after the Ferguson protests and um, the Ferguson, um, I will say, kind of revolution and movement. Uh, and it was because at that time there was even division amongst ourselves in which, well, you know, these individuals are just social media activists and, you know, they need to get into corporate or they need to do this and they need to do that. We need all of it. You right. know, we, exactly. when you look at social media activism, that had rallied thousands and then potentially millions of people. Black Lives Matter movement started from a hashtag and now it's rallied, rallied millions around the world. The same with the women's rights uh, walk. Right. You know, it's like we need those efforts, but we also need those efforts within corporations. We need those entrepreneurs that's within organizations. We need those people on the ground. We need those people within the schools. And so for me, that's what I mean when I say drops in the bucket is that we need all these little drops to continue to raise the tide in the water against our intended goal. I love it. 
I love it. Thank you, Antoinette. Thank you. I am so excited that I finally <laughs> get to meet you and hang out with you. And um, there's other things we'll be doing we'll talk about later, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, everyone, uh, be sure that you go to iTunes and you subscribe to Mishmash because we always have amazing guests like Antoinette Carroll. Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Everybody have a good day. See you later. Bye.